Hello, welcome to Dyslexia Explored. Today, I have got a performance coach with us to talk about dyslexia in all shapes and sizes. He does motivational maps, timeline therapy, NLP, and really helps people perform and doesn't have dyslexia himself, but has experienced dyslexia in all forms, children and adults. So, Bevis Moynin. Bevis, it's great to have you here with us today. Oh, pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So normally I ask people what their dyslexia story is, you know, and obviously your dyslexia story is from outside of dyslexia. You were serving it both as a coach yourself and you've got family members with dyslexia as well. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, yes, it's very pertinent, actually, because my daughter, who's nine, has just had a diagnosis and... That hasn't come as a surprise because we were exploring and, and asking questions. And, and we're really grateful, actually, that she had a wonderful assessment and that's helped. Some question marks about whether you should have to pay for these things outside of the education system, but, but that is what it is. We, we could talk about the flaws in the education sector for, for a long time. So, yeah, that's recently just happened. And it's caused us to reflect, really, because looking back, I'm fairly sure my mom probably had dyscalculia, I think looking back, knowing what the little bit that I know now, and also Jules is my wife's brother, who's a very successful businessman, interestingly, and also my wife's sister's daughter, we also suspect has gone through the education system with undiagnosed dyslexia. So, and then the other part of obviously we train something called neuro-linguistic programming, and that does often attract specialists in the neurodiversity space. So we've We've trained oh, really? some people, yeah. So we've trained a couple of people who are who run businesses in the dyslexia space. Most and those guys know a lot more than I do, but are interested to benefit from some of the elements of neurolinguistic programming that help in in that space. So for our listeners, what is neurolinguistic programming? So really good question. And that's a question we ask on the test at the end of the week because everybody answers it slightly differently, and then we borrow the best answers. So neuro is obviously about understanding the mind at a deeper level. Linguistic is about understanding how we communicate. We all communicate and take information in differently, hence the link with, with neurodivergence. So I'm very visual. Say things like, can you see what I'm saying? Which makes no sense to somebody who's very logical and does not be visual. So, so yes, and so it's about language, body language, tonality, whether we're visual, auditory, kinesthetic or auditory digital in terms of how we take information in. And then the programming bit is the therapy bit. So so we use a number of therapeutic tools in, in NLP. As I had a conversation with a wonderful lady called Julia who runs a business called Dyslexia Matters. And what we realised is that there's the condition of dyslexia, which is, if you like, you've got water in a cup. Because we had quite a heated conversation at one point, because obviously if you're in that space, we, you get attached to labels. And I was saying, yes, and what, but also we don't want to cuddle the problem either. And what I was saying was if I had a client who had one leg who couldn't climb up the stairs and was living downstairs and, and not living a great life as a result of it, I would still help them let go of the limiting belief that they couldn't climb the stairs. Because then they'd give it a go. And I think that's sometimes what happens with dyslexia is that, that and all neurodiverse conditions, that the condition, which is the water in the glass, but then, or the glass itself, but then the water in the glass can often be scar tissue from the past, the doubts, limited beliefs, or even distraction strategies that, that run. 
So, so yeah, there's sometimes the therapy part of NLP can help because then we can sometimes, if we let go of the scar tissue that you've experienced through education or some of the difficulties that often people have had in that space, then we can actually see the condition a little bit more clearly for what it is. So I, what I find is when I work with people with dyslexia, children and adults, when they get the dyslexia assessment, it affects both the parents and the children. And it's sometimes positively and sometimes negatively because the child or the person getting that clarity of what the challenge is, it's a huge relief because they've identified what the source is and what they can do about it. But often for the adults, because it's inherited, they remember their childhood and they start to re-experience some of that pain and some of the shame and so on that comes along with it. And, you know, what I'm fascinated by with what you do and your performance coaching is that pain and shame and, and the limiting beliefs. I, I remember I was speaking to one little boy and he was six, seven years old. He says, I can't read. And I said to him, you can't read yet. And, and it's like that word needs to be added into the mind. It's like, I can't tie my shoelaces. I can't read the time. I can't read. I can't write essays. I can't organize myself. I can't seem to get things done yet. And that step to yet is a big deal. It's a huge deal. I love listening to that. And it reminded me of my daughter's experience after the first day of year one. Not quite sure why we've got such a step change from reception to year one at school these days. But she came back in and went, I hate learning. Oh, jeez. No. <laughs> oh, so, I mean, that's that's in limiting belief world. That's a, that's a bit of a doozy, isn't it? Because we we don't want to be switching off our children to learning full stop. And my wife did a really good job, as you did, with using the, the temporal presupposition of yet, because it opens up, well, I can it gives me choices in the future. She drilled down that it wasn't that she, but through asking questions, that it wasn't that she didn't like learning. Because if she stood up, learning's great. If she's drawing and playing, learning's great. It's just she doesn't like being sitting down and listening and being told what to do. And we're like, okay. So at least we managed to get underneath what was going on. But of course, looking back, there was in order to be able to, for you to be able to, you to say that you can't do that yet. And for my wife to be able to unpick where the trick, what the thing was that caused that decision takes a bit of skill and time and and also the bandwidth, the emotional bandwidth to to see it for what it is. Because like you say, yeah. it, it's from both sides. Sometimes we're not always at our best as parents, even as an NLP, we, we both trained in NLP, we both make plenty of mistakes with our kids. But it's been able to look back and reflect and going, okay, what could I do? What could I have said differently or done differently? So whenever I'm on the podcast with parents who's got a child with dyslexia, it's interesting, Bevis, because often they're telling the story of that child when they're 15, 16, 17, or they wear the child and they're now 25, 30, 40. Whereas you're right at the beginning of that dyslexia story, really, you know? And what I often ask people is, what was the wake-up call? What was your understanding of dyslexia before you woke up to dyslexia in your daughter? And what was it that woke you up to dyslexia in your daughter? 
It's a funny one because I actually think that what what woke us up was the positive side, was the like there's something a little bit special here. And like if you see my daughter dance, it's phenomenal. Like time stands still and she it's and she will also dance all day. <laughs> like she won't stop. It's like wow. So I think just having had a obviously Aiden's a few years older and his normal approach is doing things as quickly as he can to get something more fun because he can. Whereas with Ellie, it was like, she's doing what she loves. Wow. If you try to get her to do something in a structured way with a time scale on it, oh boy. <laughs> and it was like, well, this is enough. So that there was a few battles there. And, and we, we learned quite quickly actually that, that we couldn't be rigid Unfortunately, we've like some of our friends and couldn't get their head around why our youngest daughter went to bed later than our older son. Was like, well, she's got a different set of sleep patterns, so you can't force her to sleep. She, she, we can, she can go to bed, but then she wants to play for an hour. You can't kind of give her a pill and say you must sleep now. So it was, we were being as flexible as we could be, but the lack of, I guess, the lack of progress around numbers and and how we would do something with repetition, but it wouldn't stick as well. That was the other thing that kind of made us aware. And of course, now having recently on the diagnosis, it's basically symbols. And I like to think, well, symbols are quite complex, aren't they really? It's only when you, re it's amazing, it's actually, isn't it? When you think all the things that we learn. So yes, that's a waffly answer to your question, but, but I hope that. Um, was it a person or just observing your child or? Did a person come along and say, I think she's dyslexic? Or... Well, that's a very good point. It's a very good point. So it was our own. We were aware that there was something different. And we did a healthy dose of beating ourselves up for not being good enough as teachers and educators. And of course, you've got the whole lockdown scenario that happened during that period of time as well. So we were kind of like we second guessing things. And is it is it us? If we not given us our, our daughter as much attention as our son, all that kind of second guessing stuff that you do, and a healthy dose of praise has to go to my wife for being very persistent with the school, and the the send lady there who is good, and they'd already started to put some systems in place. But there was a key moment actually in October on half term holiday where all the kids wrote something in the half term cottage book, and then. This, our family is quite a wide family. There's people's got three siblings, all have got two kids each. So there's age ranges of kind of four or five up to 16 year old kids on this holiday. And then Ellie wrote something in the book, and Lou, who was a deputy head at a different school, said to Jules, Come and have a look at this. There's something going on that's a bit more than what they've said at, at school. And that was kind of that, right? Actually, it was a relief because we kind of, you know, when you, somebody says something, you just kind of know it to be true. So that was the kind of we both kind of looked at each other and went right. We're gonna we we're gonna take action on this now, and and that was the moment we we and we're so glad that we did because Mia, who's one of the other siblings in the family, has been through the whole of the education system without any form of additional support, and and we don't know for sure because she's not our child, but we strongly suspect that that might be, be the case. Okay, so again, it came down to a person. Mm. Yeah. one moment and it, it's fascinating how you get this sort of preparation and then there's this like crystallining moment where the person says something and then everything crystallizes around it and you go gosh yes i see 
yeah, I, it makes sense. So many of the episodes, speaking to people, this wake up moment comes as well of a person saying, oh, hold on a minute. I think maybe this might be dyslexia. And fascinating. So going into your sort of professional hat and putting your sort of limiting beliefs and so on on, you're early on in that ex dyslexia experience with your own daughter. Yes. But Having looked at it with other people in your professional setting, where have you seen dyslexia and how have you interacted with dyslexia, whether it's consciously or unconsciously, looking back? And what have you learned? Well, I think it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think my experience in some senses has been, so I, I learned lots of things theoretically in terms of, because it's it, there's, a, there's something in NLP called the spelling strategy where, and if anybody's, if nobody's heard of Olive Hickmott, that the Elephant in the Classroom is a great book, actually, and it, and it, it and it covers some of the NLP elements in a from a dyslexic angle and how you can use these spelling strategies. So that was my first introduction to it. Was Could actually you really... on that a little bit more. What is the yeah, yeah sure sure yeah for sure. So so I I realised when I went through my NLP training experience that I'm very visual and I speak quite quickly naturally and have images moving through my head really quickly and. Obviously, one of the things when you learn personal development, NLP, you suddenly realize, crikey, not everybody's like me. Shock. Surprise. Um, and so going deeper into that and actually then learning that I was very visual and that obviously learning to communicate differently with somebody who's very kinesthetic or somebody who's very logical or somebody who's very auditory, what we tended to then find, and the theory of NLP was that if somebody has dyslexia, that there is a strong tendency for, for a kinesthetic preference. That there, there tends to be much more of a, a tactile, creative, good with hands. And of course, there's some stereotyping here, so you have to excuse me. But as a generalization, there was some truth in that. And therefore, there was the thought that often with this, people with dyslexia, that they were trying to spell kinesthetically, trying to feel the words and the letters. And of course, you can't. So, what the spelling intervention in NLP is to trial with getting words up above eye level in either quadrant, visual construct and, and visual re recall, with a view of then playing. So if you think of success, SUC, CES, you hold the SUC up in one quadrant, CES in the other quadrant. And then ultimately, and, I, and I, I did have some experience working with a client with that to some success, which was great because all of a sudden she was starting to access the visual domain and picture the words. So... So, yes, yeah, so there's the, that was my first kind of insight into it. And then the second insight was having people who were specialists in dyslexia, which I'm not, come and do our courses. And then learning from them around actually about the condition. I had some great advice from Julia about getting support from Ferelli. So I would say in some ways I'm a novice around dyslexia because I don't know a huge amount at all. But in others, we know quite a bit about how the mind is vastly different how we can communicate to different people in different ways based on their needs. And the other part of NLP is about questioning and how to ask questions to elicit what the root cause of the problem is. And I think that's great for working with someone because I think the danger is with any diagnosis is we've got this diagnosis and then we lump a lot of other stuff in with it. You mentioned embarrassment or and what, what we don't want for anybody is to avoid certain things because of a any diagnosis can we if we can let go of the scar tissue and let go of the limited beliefs then then we're more able to find a, 
away if you like you you said you, you can't do that yet so if we can't if we can let go of some of the the preconditioning or the the, the scar tissue we're much more likely to then find a, a strategy or a new way of 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 going about things and and that's the the positive side of my experience recently is working with a coaching client who I'm not going to be bold enough to suggest the condition, but he is incredible in terms of his creative scope for things. It's a real challenge. We were talking off air. It's a real challenge working with him, but a real joy as well, because he's got five life-changing, business-changing, industry-changing ideas. He's trying to do all of them at once, which is a challenge, but it's also a joy working with him because just, yeah, it's, it's, and I think that's the thing, isn't it? That's how I feel about work being spending time with Ellie it's it's a joy and a challenge one of the things that really attracted me to bringing you on the podcast is this performance coaching side and I'm I'm intrigued by exploring this area of dealing with limiting beliefs that can come up in your adulthood that might also be associated with experiences you had in your childhood at school okay now this must be universal for this will be universal yeah. for everyone okay yeah. but we know for a fact that so many people with dyslexia especially if they're in their 30s or 40s like me who found out later on in life and then they go oh gosh that's why this happened at school and oh gosh that's why this happened and so oh. on and you have this intellectual understanding of reconciliation of what happened but you don't necessarily have an emotional reconciliation of what happened. And those emotions still are there and undermining you. And I thought it would be interesting to hear a little bit about your insights on how that works out in the world of performance in general and how people with dyslexia could maybe apply that to their lives. Yeah, I'm glad you've asked because it's something I'm very passionate about because I think it does affect everybody in different ways. And when we're talking about performance coaching and when we say it affects everybody, what I mean by that is a combination of emotional scar tissue from the past, limiting beliefs slash doubts. And by the way, if you've got a doubt, it is a sign of a limiting belief. So negative emotions from the past or scar tissue from the past, limiting beliefs slash doubts, and then internal conflicts where part of you wants X, but there's another part of you going, ah, but what if... So those those are typically what we find to be the subconscious blocks to either performance or well-being. And so with the performance coaching, the breakthrough coaching that we both do and use with clients and train others to do, we aim to get everybody to have a clear goal of what they want to achieve, not for the sake of achieving it. I remember working with one lady who is in the uh, who is a trainer in the New York Diversity Arena, and she didn't want to set a goal. We had a real ding dong around it, not a ding dong, but we had a really positive debate on this. And she said, "Look, I have come from this place that has been pretty shitty, <laughs> and I am now okay. And you are getting me to write to write a goal, a name for something to start. And I'm going, yeah, because." I want you to find out what's holding you back from that. Yeah, you're comfortable now. You've gone from being in a not great place to being comfortable. But comfortable isn't amazing. So what does amazing look like? And then you'll find things that are keeping you stuck in that comfort zone right now. And it's really interesting to see because we've kept in touch with after the course and, and the fact that she's now out there as a speaker, running her own business, getting paid really well for doing what she loves in terms of coaching and training 
So, so some of that, some of that course landed, if not all of it, because you can only apply what you're ready to apply at the time. So yes, it is the scar tissue that we've all got. I wanted to be a professional cricketer and I didn't turn up for a county trial because I was afraid of failing. I didn't believe I was good enough. So that was my dharma and purpose and why I've done a lot of work in the sports arena. And what we find is that those who've, so I'm a big believer in dharma and purpose, that our purpose often comes from helping people with the things that we ourselves struggled with. Dharma, you say dharma. Yeah, dharma. So it's a a spiritual kind of philosophy that that our purpose often comes from helping people to overcome things we've ourselves overcome, overcame. Oh, I see. Right. Yes. Which is why so many people with dyslexia end up helping other people with dyslexia like i i've got dyslexia and my daughter and so on you you end up feeling this compulsion to stretch out your hand to help others upstream and i think from my experience the people who have the highest degree of thought this is the link with the motivational maps less than 20 30 percent of people on the planet are fulfilled and from my experience, the ones who are most fulfilled are those who actually have had suffering and challenges and those who have learned to overcome them to a lesser or greater extent and who are extending that hand out to help others. I remember meeting a lady on a golf course who was running a charity, a cancer charity, and, and she'd had lost a child. And it was a really striking conversation because I was talking to her thinking this is the worst thing I could ever imagine happening. Yet shining through her, she was just so fulfilled. I mean, there's some healing had gone on, obviously, over the five years from the event to where she was. But you could just see she was a happy, fulfilled, contented human being. So I've got in my mind a number of people who I've interviewed and who I've met on this journey, adults, that when they look back to their childhood at school, they remember everything the teachers had said to them and how people looked at them and they think that they're stupid sometimes. I mean, I interviewed a, a dentist in, in on the podcast. It's a fascinating episode because we did half the interview just before he got his assessment and then half the interview after the assessment to see how he felt. So before the assessment, he was really nervous as an adult, you know, and he's won awards he's super intelligent he's just one of the most wonderful people i know and he still felt like there's a part of him that was stupid you know and i'm like that's crazy everything round about you demonstrates quite the opposite and yet you have that still that ghost of school following you what would you say to those people who are thinking like that how would you deal with that sort of thing it's firstly just ex- there's an acceptance bit that that's quite normal, that 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 it's okay because I think a lot of people think that it's only them that have that that demon if you like. So the first bit is accept it's okay, it's normal. The second bit is to know that it's possible to do something about it. So you mentioned the word parts in NLP. There's a there's a process called parts integration where you heal parts. The best thing that happened to me in my personal development journey was uncovering and experiencing timeline therapy where I let go of all of the emotions from the past. So I became emotionally neutral about some of my scars and demons from the past. And we've all got them to a lesser or greater extent. And it's been that privilege of a lifetime to now train other people to use that tool. 
and to witness directly the effect of using that therapeutic process with others. So uh, both in therapy, where it is deep therapy, where there's really not very nice things happened and seeing the positive effect there, and in performance coaching, where actually somebody's a blocked from going for that next job or stepping out of their comfort zone because it doesn't match their internal dialogue or because of the past, because of their experience at, at school or whatever it was that has created that, that scar tissue. This podcast is sponsored by DyslexiaProductivityCoaching.com, which helps you organize yourself creatively with a productivity system for Apple devices. Yeah, it's, you know, my wife does this as well, and she keeps saying this phrase, the map is not the territory, <laughs> which is NLP phrase, isn't it? Yeah. 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 And it's just so beautiful as a concept. And I think it's really helpful. Could you explain to us, and I want to tie this into dyslexia. Could you explain to us what the map is not the territory? It makes me smile because I became trained in NLP in 2008 and it took me about four years to understand what the map is not the territory was. So, so the map is not the territory is basically explaining that the way we explain something isn't how it is it can't possibly be because we think we're using sounds like ah, eh, eh, oh, oh. it's impossible to explain reality with words so the way we the way we explain something isn't the way that it is it's based on our own representation of how things are so I often describe a story where I was in a, a, a pub after a season of cricket and we'd just won the league and the captain was a young 21, 22-year-old and he said to me, Bevis, I'm not being rude, but I don't think you should be captain next year. And then we got interrupted. In fact, actually, we got interrupted first after that, I'm not being rude, but, and I was all immediate thinking, well, he's going to be rude. And then we got interrupted again and then we got interrupted again and then eventually I was kind of almost ready to defend myself. Well, why do you think I shouldn't be captain next season? And then after about half an hour, I remembered enough NLP to know that the meaning of communication isn't the response you get. And also what he's trying to communicate with words isn't exactly what's going on in his brain. And then he said, yeah, I don't think because I didn't interrupt and interject. He then said, yeah, I don't think you should be captain next year because we need more leadership voice in the dressing room. And I was like, oh, there's a positive message there. But the original language, the map is not the territory, the words that he was using weren't adequately describing what was going on in his brain. And that that's because it's impossible to do that 100% effectively, however skilled at communicating we are. And yet, how often do we get unsaid? Or So basically, we've all got this internal map made of words and pictures and experiences and so on that we've stitched together that is trying to describe the outside reality of our world. And sometimes it matches and sometimes it doesn't. And as you go through this map and you navigate through life using this map, mm. and I kind of think of it as like you might have on your map, oh, there's a path here and then there's a cliff over there and then there's a hole over here and there's a bridge over here and you just follow it. And then all of a sudden you fall in a hole and you go, that shouldn't have happened because there's no hole there. But the map <laughs> says there's a bridge and you, you realize the map is, doesn't match the territory and you have to yeah. adjust the map. Would that be an accurate illustration? 
Well, thank you for explaining that more simply than I did. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's lovely. Yeah. And I think the other thing I would say is that it never does and it can't. And I think actually. So you just make peace that it's always a rough approximation to reality. Yeah. So we're always making decisions on unambiguous and inaccurate information. So the, and I think a lot of people give themselves a real hard time when people first learn NLP and we get the the note slide which says count the number of Fs on the on the slide and they can't do it. They get give themselves a hard time. And I'm like, this is just that happens. The mind is constantly deleting, distorting, and generalizing. So we're we're always making decisions based on inaccurate data. Obviously, the more we learn, the more we learn about language and people and communication, the more rounded our maps become, but they're never hundred percent accurate which is why I love combination of NLP and emotional intelligence to know that if you're not feeling good, you're not thinking as clearly because most of us self-sabotage when we're feeling angry or when we're feeling fearful and avoiding doing something we really want to do. And if we know that the map is not the territory, we we then don't act on the anger or we don't let the fear stop us. We can navigate life a little bit easier. Okay, so let's bring this round back to uh, your daughter, for example, at school. Okay, or a child at school or mini little Darius at school, you know, 30 years ago. Okay, so our map, what's happening is the the school and the people round about us are sending us information that we are creating into this kind of map of reality, this way we view the world and way we interact with the world. Just like you would roll out a map to figure out where you're going, you've got this emotional, mental map to help you navigate the world around you. And I suspect if you've got dyslexia, like your daughter said, I don't like learning. She's immediately created some form of map of learning that doesn't match reality because she's now decided that learning involves sitting in a chair watching the teacher, doing what the teacher said, sitting still and not moving, whereas actually her soul wants to dance around a subject and, you know, see it 365 and move and so on. So she's created a map. Help me understand that. She's created a map of learning that doesn't match reality. So I I think, obviously, her her filters are being developed from childhood and everyone's filters are different. So everyone's really projecting out what something means. And the early experiences from year one was that she didn't like learning because even the teacher would say, right, now it's time for learning. Ah. With a certain tonality. And be like, oh, shit, learning. Oh, God, right, learning. So it gets anchored in that learning is this thing where we sit down. Now, contrast that to her first session with her dyslexia specialist tutor, which she's just had, literally just had. Jesus. I mean, I feel myself getting emotional. She, yeah, I mean, it was just amazing. She was, I was just emotional by this. Wow. Yeah, she, she, I mean, I didn't even need to ask her. She said, oh, it was amazing. There was Play-Doh. And and then she got the the recipe for the Play-Doh so we can make it at home. And and clearly she'd been learning, but she didn't even see it as learning. So and that's the skill, isn't it? That is the skill because I know from the work that we do that all learning is state dependent. And and therefore, I do feel bad about the times we tried to teach in a traditional manner and, and created a negative state around it. 
fortunately we didn't keep doing it because she is a genius. She's she's just as Aiden. Our son is a genius in his own right, and he's a very talented sportsman. And and Ellie is a very talented. She's got her own genius, and I think that's the the thing. Everybody's got their own genius. It's just finding it. What I see in a lot of parents with dyslexia and their own children, you know how dyslexia is inherited. Do you or your wife have, are either of you dyslexic? We think we think not. But we certainly see it in our wider family. And my my mum, we see a lot of similarities between Ellie and my mum, who, who sadly passed away three years ago. Just incredibly creative. And 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 Dan, I mean Dan Jules's brother, who's who's <laughs> who's the happiest person to be made redundant as a seventeen year old, and is now a very successful businessman. But only at his happiest when he's creating something new. Yeah, and then then he doesn't really want to run the business he's created. So actually, he's a successful entrepreneur in that sense. Yeah. So I think we've we've skipped some generations in our family. I do interestingly find myself sometimes looking at some of the work I've done and going, "Oh, that's interesting." Just 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 curious when you sometimes yeah, you just I just had the odd moment of reflection recently, and I don't so, so we might we may be somewhere on the on, but I don't think either of us would would get a diagnosis of dyslexia. Yeah, well, you might get surprised. Maybe, maybe you know. Because I always thought I was mildly dyslexic. And when I got my dyslexia assessment at 35, I told the tutor saying, look, I feel a bit like a fraud here because the only reason I'm doing this assessment is so I can type in my essays in my second degree. And she said, well, you're not a fraud because you are moderately dyslexic. And I said, no, I'm not really dyslexic. I'm just mildly. I have some difficulties with writing and spelling. And so on. she said, no, Darius, you've really got to understand you have dyslexia, moderate dyslexia. It's not extreme, but it's not mild. It is affecting you. And when she sat me down and gave me a good talking to, and she said, let me show you what you did. And I, I had to read this like nine-year-old story, 10-year-old story of Mary and Jane went up the hill and did this and did that and came down and they did this and they did that. And a comprehension test, one-page story. I read it and she said, you can read it as many times as you like, as fast or as slow. And I read it. I read it three times. Okay. Ten questions at the end. I don't like getting failing tests. So ten questions at the end asked about Mary and Bill. What did they do by the lake? And I said, there was no lake. I said, can I have a look at the, the, the story? And she said, no, you're sorry, you can't. You just have to do it from your mind and what you can I said, there is no lake. And it was just a tiny detail. And I didn't get, and there was another one like that. And when I when I answered them all, I said, can I see the thing again now? And I read it. And, it, and I, there was a tiny little detail. It went past the lake and put something down. And it wasn't relevant to the story. And I really, and she says, your brain is skipping over details you don't think are relevant. Shit. You're doing Shit. that all the time. Okay. And you don't realize you're doing it because what your brain is doing is backfilling those gaps with what it guesses is a logical infill. And she said, you can get away with this in ordinary life a lot. But if you're in academia, you can infill, backfill a little word here or there, and you can get the whole thing wrong. Just why a lot of people with dyslexia find answering a question that's quite long 
for an essay, they go off on the wrong tangent. Is that resonating, Bedfuss? Well, <laughs> what's resonating is, is a couple of things. I think we need to get my son assessed because he's struggling in English relative to all of his other subjects. And interestingly, I did quite well at school, apart from with English. So, and also I've got an aversion to academia. So there's a, there's a reason, I guess there's a purpose and a reason why I found the stuff that I've learned since, like my whole business is based on what I've learned outside of academia. Even though I did go and into, ended up getting, doing a degree in sports science and I did follow that trend for a little while. But really, our business is based on what I've learned outside of, of yeah. academia and, and learned holistically and practically. So it's, yeah, no, I'm feeling very grateful, actually, for this conversation, because I think now I'm thinking we definitely ought to, because I'm fairly sure I'm probably mildly dyslexic from what you've just shared. It feels it feels awful, doesn't it, when you're as a parent, when you're thinking, crikey, we've, we've done this with Ellie because it's bad, but it's not bad enough. And I'm now, now feeling, I feel that we definitely need to take some action. So... Thank you. Yeah, I think what tends to happen is the people with severe dyslexia, extreme dyslexia, get identified, you know, six, seven, eight, nine years old. The people with, you know, moderate dyslexia get identified in their teens. And then the people with mild dyslexia in their adulthood or moderate in their adulthood. And, you know, I don't know if you've heard the analogy of the automatic car versus a manual car with dyslexia yet. Have you? No. So my daughter, who's dyslexic, she, on a report, said slow processing. Okay. Processing speed was slow. And so she's yeah, like, we... how can my IQ be up here and my processing speed down here? Processing means speed and intelligence, doesn't it? I don't understand that. Have you... Did you see that on your report? Well, so we've seen it for Ellie um, on on hers. Yes. Slow that was the first thing. There was no 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 mention of dyslexia, but it was about slow processing speed. Yes. So with dyslexia, the way I explain it to people is imagine, and I got this from my daughter, imagine your brain is a car. Your intelligence is the engine. And your processing is the gearbox. You can have a manual Ferrari and an automatic Ferrari. They can go just as fast and drive just as well, and they're just as amazing. But the manual Ferrari, you need to learn to go up the gears. The automatic Ferrari, you're going to drive, and you don't need to think about the gears. Just one gear, forwards or backwards, that's it. Dyslexia is the manual car. And if they they are slow processing, what, what that means is they're actually manual processors. They, they're slow because they have to go through the stages. They can become fast, super fast, as fast as an automatic, but everything has to be so intentional about getting up through those gears into speed. Yeah, And it makes them remarkable sports people as well because they have to be so intentional about processes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that rings true in terms of some of the experiences we've had recently where we learned we one of the, the signs along the way was we'd been in the car together and we asking Ellie a question and Aiden would start speaking or he'd answer it for her and we'd and then Ellie'd go Shh. and and then we all had to learn to go right because 
the the tendency is for one of us to then speak over or and, and not create that space. And I, you may skipping information because I thought that was one of my superpowers of what I ignored. So it's an interesting one, isn't it? So I, yeah, I'm certainly inspired to to look more deeply in for the rest of the family. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is a superpower because in some ways with dyslexia, we're always trying to look at the big picture. It's like we've got the fisheye lens on the camera. Some people have like a wide angled lens and some have a typical lens. Some have a telephoto autistic, you know, straight <laughs> tiny little detail. I don't see anything else outside of that frame. I'm just yeah. focused on this. And other people are like, you know, I kind of like it, you know, like a teacher might say, we're going to learn about this horse in the field by the tree. And you describe this horse in the field by the tree and you just presume everyone's looking at the same horse in the same field by the tree, which is over there. But this kid has got such a wide angle view that they're like, I can see a horse in the tree over there, five horses over there, 10 trees over there. Which one are you talking about? <laughs> Everyone's looking at this one, obviously, but they've got such a big angle of view of, of subjects and attention that there's a trade-off, which is they're not got the pixel focus mm. on detail that other people have that have got a more zoomed-in lens. So there's this trade-off happening. Yeah. You know? Wow. So limiting beliefs and dyslexia, NLP, if someone's got limiting beliefs and with regard to performance coaching, I'm, I, I would love to explore the whole realm of sports performance coaching because one of the episodes I did was on one, one of the traits with dyslexia, okay, is that often people with dyslexia have a correlation with being good at sport. And a lot of sports people have got dyslexia. They don't really talk about it much because words and writing and all the language side of things isn't a huge part of their lives anymore. But one of the interesting things is people with dyslexia don't have the same level of automaticity as other people. They don't become automatic at things as easily or quickly. It's like this automatic car. They don't naturally go into automatic. And so if you don't have a high level of automaticity, you're less easy to predict as a sports person in a team. So if you're playing, you don't have a pattern that someone's decoding and saying they always go left or they always do this. And, and I'm going to respond like that. They just do unexpected stuff all the time. And you're like, where is the pattern? And it's like, I don't have a pattern because I can't remember the pattern. I just do. So it's it's both a blessing and a curse. Have you seen anything like this happening in your realm? Well, I think immediately I can relate to I can relate to my daughter as a dancer because she is at her best. So I'll give you an example. She what they they do performances and they go and perform, and of course some of the a lot of the dancers are rehearsed and they're routined, and she does some of them in pairs and some of them as a group, and and in those dances she does well. But you do catch the odd moment of a looking gun. Oh, I can't know what I'm meant to be doing now. And and there's a bit of that going on. Now, she went to a, the first one. The first thing she won as a nine-year-old was when she went to a competition locally. And they did this 
competition where and she was pushed on last minute by actually by one of her friends who pushed her on the stage which is quite interesting where they did this basically free dance where they had all the kids on the stage and they put a bit of music on and they all had to dance and then they went okay we'll gradually keep gradually after each dance we'll ask a few people to come off and and lo and behold bear in mind she was the youngest one from her dance school she was the last one on the stage and that was because she didn't have to think to, so she was when she was asked actually by the dyslexia assessor why she liked dancing she said her answer was like well because i can be the music I was like, wow. So she, she, when she dances without any routine, she's incredible because she's just feeling it and reacting as opposed to when it's more structured. It, you can see it's not quite as natural or maybe even as enjoyable. Although I wouldn't want to say that because she loves all of it. Certainly in, it's interesting because all sports are different, aren't they? So team sports where you've got the, the rugby's and the footballs where you've got the, the kind of unpredictability of the winger in rugby is what makes them amazing versus golf which is very much process and like got to follow this process stick to the process so yeah that's the, the amazing thing isn't it about different yeah and, and actually how di almost different neurodiverse tendencies would match different sports like oh, i've yeah. got i've got a golfer i work with who's top 40 in the world now he spent 10 hours hitting golf balls before his first tournament of the season 10 hours i mean i i love my golf but i couldn't imagine hitting golf balls for more than 45 minutes so there's a there's a definite definite something going on there he's also a very high expert in the motivational map and a, and a real perfectionist so so yeah it's it's interesting i think how different mindsets and different tendencies lead to different sports yes because if you think about dyslexia or adhd or autism or any kind of different way of thinking as like they say in the dyslexic advantage it's a specialism of the mind so there's some trade-offs certain areas get specialized and other areas it, it it's a zero-sum game as it were you know you borrow from certain areas and you strengthen mm -hmm. boost up other areas because your brain's been specialized for a particular thing and you see that in the workplace, how people navigate to areas of specialism. And that, that's a fascinating idea about how it would match towards different sports mm. that match a certain kind of brain. Yeah, for sure. I, I think, and I think it, it, it's just interesting. I think I've never even thought about it until this conversation. But yeah, you can see definitely the, the quirkiness of a, of, of a footballer who you can't predict. Yes. Versus the the ability to stick to a process and do something until it's perfect and really refine something is a, is a very different mindset. But then the interesting thing I've noticed is that each sport has its own core discipline. Mm. It's non-negotiable. You have to master, you know, a particular process or a particular discipline. And that's often where people with difficulty with processing, slow processing, have to become super intentional about it. Like if you take, for example, Jackie Stewart of our age and our era world champion driver, dyslexic, Scottish, he would have to learn all the gears and moving up through that. But that's an intentional process that you have to learn. Often people dyslexia find harder at the beginning but the whole dynamic of reading the road, adapting to the road, et cetera, mm -hmm. totally natural at. 
but there's always some area of process that's required. Yes, and and thinking with with golf, you've got the the everyone's going to be have to hit a golf ball and learn the technique to be able to do that. But then once they're out playing, they've got to read the land, the lie, the the slope, yeah. the the actual the playing the game part. There's a feel to that. There's a there's there's a bit more an art to it. So there's a bit of both involved in terms of the. So it's yeah, it's, I think it's it's interesting, isn't it? Just reflecting on that really, and and how people find different ways. I I just love love sports, seeing how different characters go about it in very different ways, and and how different strategies that work for them. So you spend a lot of your time as a golf coach, performance coach for golfers, do you? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. How did you yeah. get to become a performance coach for golfers? Good question. Good question. So interestingly, a lot of my past scar tissue was in the arena of sport. So I tried to, when I learned NLP, the guy who trained me was very keen to, to get me into cricket and say, look, I can get you into counties and we'll go and present together. And I was like, no, don't want to, don't want to do it. And I was just kind of avoided sport actually, but it won't go away. <laughs> so in the end, I've just got, I'm going to accept it. So so I think there's a bit of my dharma there and my purpose in there. So I, I to, to cut a long story short, after my NLP Master Practitioner course, I watched a chap present, a guy called Jamie Edwards, who's written the book Mental Ketchup. And he presented on the inner game golf at a conference centre local to me. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. And then as he was presenting, I started predicting what he would talk on next. And I kept being right. And I kept thinking, if I was him, I'd do this next. And then he did. And I was like, this is a bit weird. And I was hot off my own breakthrough session that I'd had as part of the course. And the, the, the guy who worked with me had said, make sure you take the chance to do something you wouldn't normally do when it comes up. So at half time, and I went up to speak to Jamie Donaldson, who was the golf pro, who actually was my golf coach, and said, look, I can do what Jamie Edwards do, does. You've got 80 people in the audience. We need to We need to put something on afterwards to help them because Jamie Edwards is going to be disappearing, flying around the globe. And very sceptically, Jamie agreed to meet me for a cup of coffee. And he gave me a, a coaching client who had the yips with chipping. And I was able to help that client overcome the yips. And then Jamie got interested. And then I ended up helping him, from a business sense, exit the, the place he was working and find something more fulfilling. He became a green reading coach, would you believe? He spends his life teaching people how to read greens and has been doing that for a decade. And he's now based at Woburn's, worked with Ian Poulter, worked with some of the top golfers. So really, it all stemmed from that one relationship in that he referred Matt Tipper to me. Matt Tipper's a golf pro, Welsh, working in Poland. After three or four years of working with Matt, Matt said to me, I've got a young guy who's a really good golfer I'd like to speak to. Turned out to be Adrian Moronk. I've been working with Adrian for five years and he's currently, well, I was having to thank you for nudging this back because I spoke to him just before the podcast. So... So it's really relationships, and I think that's the amazing thing. It's not been massively strategic, and obviously people have seen the success Adrian's had over the last five years, and, and we've picked up a few of the clients along the way. And what I love about it is you've got somebody like Adrian who's very analytical, very logical, and very visual, so he needs to see the shot, and he needs to to kind of say that right. That he needs to – I think he has this phrase with the caddy, perfect, which is his signal to commit to the shot – Whereas another client we're working with is very, very kinesthetic and very competitive and is trying to beat the opponent. 
and 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 actually the the way we coach and where we work together and the way that we work with their coaches so that that relationship works is very different because it is the nice thing about Adrian and Matt I'm involved it's a bit of an unusual one that I'm coaching his coach and him so there's a nice it's a bit of an unusual situation I wouldn't always recommend that but there's a dynamic there whereas you can imagine in lockdown Matt's quite they're very different people and without being able to see each other face to face that was challenging for a while so some of that awareness of the fact that we can get a message from Adrian, there's normally three words. There's not a lot, there's no emojis, there's no fluff around it. Whereas Matt's a very emotional, fiery, yeah, they, they work they work their magic when they're together, they work their magic. So that's if that was, that was a very long-winded answer, sorry about that. No, that's fascinating, fascinating. You know, I've got a funny story about Joe, my wife, and golf and being top golf. I got given golf lessons. Joe felt a bit left out and said, I want to join in. So I said, come and join. So the golf pro taught her how to swing. And she did this huge, hard whack of the ball and obviously, you know, divoted it. And the ball went a few feet and she kept doing this. And the, and the coach was just saying, you know, just, just hit it gently, you know, and, and just let it take it through, you know, and, and so bang she hit it as hard as she could and, and it hardly went anywhere and then i had this realization i said to joe i said joe are you trying to get the ball in the hole and she said of course i'm trying to get the ball in the hole and i said but this is a par four it takes four shots to get it in the hole and she says no i'm gonna do it in one and she's and she said, if I can't do it in one, I'm not doing it at all. So she, <laughs> you times, I'm done with this golf. <laughs> I love that. I love that. And it is it is that kind of game. And I've had I've had people who've never played. We we I mean we're based here on a golf course. So the office is on a golf course. We've had people who come on courses and we've heard the golf chat, and some people have gone, like Paul, who one of my co-trainers said, oh, I quite fancy having a hit and then taking to the range and, geez, he's just hit a pitching wedge 100 yards. And, and I'm like, wow. And he kind of like, oh, well, that's quite enjoyable. And also taking other people along who hit three balls and gone, yep, yeah, no, nope, never want to do that ever again. <laughs> that's right, yeah. It's funny that. Well, it's been great having you on the podcast. And just nice to just talk around all of this. I'd like to finalise things in terms of NLP, it's such a, you know, for me, for example, my, I've only properly, I, my first introduction to NLP was a book by Tony Robbins. He mentioned it briefly in the book, you know, and he, he, he gave the steps to it. And I thought, right, well, I'll just sit down and try this step. And he gave a little exercise. And for me, it was brushing my teeth. I found that brushing my teeth was really hard to get into the habit of. And so he said, find something that you find habitually hard to do and then associate it with something that you find super pleasurable. And he made, we made that association. And I went through the steps in the book. Sure enough, I keep brushing, rubbing my, 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 my teeth with my tongue. And if I don't feel it, if I feel it smooth, I really enjoy it now because I've associated that enjoyment and i feel it if i feel it rough 
I've boosted the, oh, I don't like that sort of feeling. So I go and get motivated by the feeling to brush my teeth. And that's my only experience of NLP. So what would you say to other people who are out there who've never really thought of NLP? What would you say to them? Is it worth it? There's so many things you can do in this world. I I would love everybody. I mean, I think you know more NLP than you think you do. Like when you said you don't know how to do that yet, you're using a temporal presupposition of time to suggest that it is possible. So you don't need the jargon around it. So you know more NLP by osmosis than you realize. I think I would say I would love everybody to explore NLP. I mean, it changed the course of my life. I mean, I was, nobody would have known it, but I was walking around with the map that I wasn't good enough. And mm-hmm. that was, and, and yet everybody looking at me would have gone, yeah, but Bevis, you're working in leisure, managing a leisure center, playing cricket at a cricket club, member of a golf club. You're kind of following what we thought you would do from, but inside I wasn't fulfilled or happy. So I think it's, I mean, I've just got this idea, one of our next door neighbours, who's a lovely lady called Claire, who's our childminder, who's now a coach, interestingly, and doing a fantastic job working with some of as an associate coach for us and doing her own coaching independently. She burst into tears in the, the second day just from learning the rep systems when she went. She and, I, and it was the first time I've ever seen anybody react like that to that particular part of the course. And she said, I've just realised something. I was like, what? So I'm not stupid. I, I'm just, I just learned differently to the way that teacher taught. I was like, wow. So that, that, I don't know who that teacher was and that time in her life that, that that was led to a decision of her being stupid, which clearly isn't the case. So I think the, the beautiful thing about NLP is it helps. It's, it's, I mean, it's healing, really. It's what it's about. It's about healing, really, at a deeper level. It's about finding out what needs to heal and, and learning how to heal it, as well as, and in the process, everyone who does NLP thinks it's about learning about other people and how they can help others. Or thinks that I would help them in business. And it does, but the surprise is how much you learn about yourself. That's the surprise. It's it's when else do you spend a week or a day working on yourself? So So you would recommend people go and do like a week-long training in NLP. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So that so there's various different options as a day, which is a first steps day, or a week, which is a practitioner course. Or the master practitioner is the longer option, which is for those who want to go off and use it with others. I mean, you, so yeah, so that those are the those are the kind of the the ways in which you can learn it. The stuff you can do online, but I would I would avoid. I'm a bit of a traditionalist when it comes to NLP. I'm not a traditionalist in many senses, but I don't think you can be an NLP practitioner or master practitioner just by doing it online. Because there's an there's there's an energy about it. There's an energetic. If you're working with a client, you really need to have learned how to use that technique in person with a client before you then start doing it online. And and so so I think yes, it's I'd I'd love everybody to at least explore it to a lesser or greater extent in in some way, shape, or form. And do you think it would help dyslexia, adults with dyslexia, for example? How do you think it would help them? Yeah, well, that's that was back to my clunky metaphor at the start of this um program so definitely because what we've seen with our daughter and with if you if you are have grown up with dyslexia and gone through the education system i think it's almost inevitable that you've picked up scar tissue from that experience and everybody does anyway but i think it, it just from my experience of, of the people i've spoken to who've come on our courses it's by letting go of the scar tissue the emotions the limiting beliefs doesn't change the condition, but it frees you up. And it's a difficult thing to explain. 
because actually it's a release. And then following that release, you see other opportunities or you take different decisions that you might otherwise have done. So, yeah, I'm obviously very passionate about it because it's what's changed the course of my life, along with lots of other things I've learned since, I have to say, because it's there are lots of amazing healing methodologies out there. But I think NLP is great because you get to heal, but also get to learn how to help others in the same. It's a double whammy, really. And and what what about, can you just go to a coach who just says, right, let's go through a process using NLP? Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, absolutely. So, and that's really, I mean, our business, we do direct coaching one-to-one and therapy one-to-one, and we have associate coaches, but we also train NLPs. Um, what's interesting, though, and this used to annoy my ego, so I used to have coaching clients and then at partway through the coaching journey, they'd go, I'd like to learn more about NLP because they'd experienced it and they'd experienced the benefit of it. So then they'd come on an NLP practitioner course and then they'd have this massive breakthrough on the NLP practitioner course. So I'd be like, well, hang on a minute. Why did you have that breakthrough with me? What's going on there? So, and I think it's just something about, something about the immersive experience of being with, because that's the other thing. It's It's people who are open and open-minded and open-minded to the fact that we all think differently. Love that environment because it is an environment where everyone else is is open-minded. So you get this wonderful dynamic which creates, and I shouldn't be surprised, I was to begin with, because coaching is great and it has a focus. Then, of course, as you go a year later, you're aware of something else and you work on and, and let go of what, what comes up in that space and time. So, yes, I would either coaching... If, and again, it's also a personal thing. Sometimes if there's lots of deep scar tissue, actually one-to-one work would be better because it's about do they do some of the healing first before then learning about it. We we have had one lady who came on NLP practice. It's only one. I'm just kind of hygiene factor on that. One lady came on an NLP practitioner course. Interesting lady who hires the office behind the one I'm at. And she left after day one. And... She's very, we spoke afterwards and she said, yeah, I became aware that I was going to have to deal with something I wasn't ready to deal with. And then, and actually it was around the death of her daughter, but she did, she did come back and then went and then wholeheartedly threw herself into the exercises and got a lot out of it. So, yeah, you know, NLP, if you don't mind me being honest and frank, has always sounded like a culty type jargony. yeah hard to get your head around even though i know a little bit about it and my wife has you know learned nlp and so on and coaching what would you say to people because it's been around quite a long time and this sort of jargony word you know what how can people understand it more accessibly you know i think so out of all of the stuff on the nlp syllabus the bit that i enjoy the least is the language bit which is interesting. And I think, <laughs> which is interesting. Um, <laughs> so, and it's really weird. It's really weird because now, and I, and I think the, the thing is, we, it's a very friendly environment and it's not like, because the thing is people think about a week of training, it immediately takes people back to their own experiences. Like again, Claire, a good friend of ours, there was one with values of thinking, which is a master practice technique. We had, we had everybody's scores on their values of thinking on it. And and she flipped out because there was a there was a matrix. There was a, kind of effectively a number of lines and 
So, of course, what happens is actually the NLP course actually almost intentionally, in a very kind, gentle way, triggers you. So it's there is, and then the the, the downside is the jargon. The yes. good and good that is the downside. I, I can't like it. It's the, it, that's the downside. The positive side is if if you've got a good NLP trainer, they'll make it simple to understand. Right. Or or and or create enough space because actually what often happens on my trainings is I'll say something and then my co-trainer will explain it in a different way and then somebody else in the audience will go, this is what they mean and they go, ah, and then it we get that. It becomes okay. a very co co-created environment and. Yeah, and we've kind of gone full circle. We we used to be, oh, we've got to get through the whole syllabus. Now we're like, well, look, we'll get through what's right for this group. And some so one week we might not quite get, we might miss a swish pattern off or another week we might not do one of the anchoring exercises. But it doesn't matter because every group of people every week is different. So I suppose the thing for me, I'm I'm kind of expressing my own reaction to it. It's the word programming. Yeah. That's probably jarring with me, which is like, I don't know if I want to program my life or program myself. I want to be more organic or more. I don't know. It's that program word. Have you come? Yes, it is the worst marketed thing out there. Yes. <laughs> it is, honestly. And, and I can say that because. Because I've done, I did a talk for a business club locally on a Tuesday evening, and they've asked me to speak four or five different times. And I can honestly say every single talk has been about NLP in one way or another. However, this this last one I labelled as the lessons from elite sport in business, and I had fifteen slides, each with one sentence on. It was all NLP. I just labelled it as elite sport in business. And that's what that's what you you will see it out there in the wider world, labelled up and packaged up in different ways. It would it'd been better off if it had been called NLA, neurolinguistic awareness, because oh. you can't you cannot. And this is the magic actually of it, and this is the art of it, and this is why people are intuitive and creative and actually are way better therapists and, and coaches, because you can't help somebody let go of something they're not aware of. Mm-hmm. So that the you learn the techniques and the techniques work, but the magic of it they learn what it is they need to let go of, and that's taking nice. them on a journey so that they're comfortable doing that, and that's the magic of it. And actually, that's the bit I probably I probably have learned to excel at because the techniques work. So that bit always works. It's just you can only let go of what you're aware of. So. So that's where the agility comes in. And there is a bit of language, but a lot of it's about rapport and energy. Yeah. So, so yeah, it is unfortunately the worst described thing out there. It's the thing that has, for me, this thing that's got the most benefit with the worst reputation out of everything I've experienced in life. Yes. There are also, there are also some people who learn it and then use it manipulatively because I guess you could if you were that way inclined. So there are also people who've had some bad experiences out there as well. So we can't ignore that. Well, Bevis, it's been fantastic to be on this meandering talk about, you know, <laughs> performance and dyslexia and so on. It's been great. Thank you very much. Learned well, thank you. I Well, I feel I've learned a lot, actually, and you've inspired me in a couple of areas. So thank you. Pleasure. Pleasure. Thank you.
This podcast is sponsored by dyslexiaproductivitycoaching.com. It's my day job when I'm not hosting this podcast. Tell me, do you know what you want to achieve in the workplace, but you're struggling with how to achieve it? Maybe you suspect some traits of dyslexia are getting in the way. Well, that's where dyslexia productivity coaching comes in because we give you a simple productivity system for your Apple devices that harnesses the creativity that comes with your dyslexia. It includes proven methods like note-taking, reminders, speech-to-text, mind mapping, and more, all tailored to your needs. It'll free up your time and help you achieve outstanding results. Book a complimentary call to discuss it with me, and if you do it soon, I may also be available to coach you personally via Zoom. So don't be shy. Go to dyslexiaproductivitycoaching.com or swipe up and book it now.